Good day. Welcome to Partaker's Bible Thought Podcast. Come on in. Reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 12 to 22. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and then to let you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner, so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is preached among you by us, by me, Silas, and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So it's great to be here again, and God is on the move. So please do keep your Bibles open at uh, the passage that was just read to us, and I'll pray yet again. Father, thank you that you have called us uh, up the hill tonight to gather together in fellowship. And may, as we open up your word, may we leave here not only knowing that we've met with you and met with each other, but also have left with something more to do. And all of God's people said, Amen. I wasn't here two weeks ago when we started this series with the first 11 verses of the chapter, and I haven't heard what David Williams has said. Though from what I gleaned from those 11 verses is that God was a God of all comfort as he comforts his people in and through any mental anguish or trial they are undergoing. It's all praise be to him. This is our God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And as Christians are being compelled to rely on him alone, God alone rescues in our various situations and he will continue to do so again and again. Why? Because he loves and empowers us. I know that describes my experience of following him for almost 40 years now. Does that describe your experience as a Christian, if you're one here tonight? Adam said several things this morning in his preach that I will mention tonight. God is at work, 
this talk was prepared earlier this week, I didn't know what Adam was going to say, and as ever, Adam didn't know what I was going to say, because he's normally always surprised at something. Let's see if you can pick those things out tonight. And with that said, let's get into our passage and verses 12 to 22. Paul and his team are under pressure from some people who are accusing him of being a false apostle, as well as other things. His accusers are false teachers who have come into the Corinthian church to subvert the gospel that Paul had taught and lived. When we lived in London in a large, we used to attend a large Anglican church, and sometimes we would get people from the cults come in and try to take those people who were isolated so that they would not come back into their cults, because that's the way that the cults do it, particularly in London, in the large churches, because they can go by unnoticed, can't they? His accusers, the false teachers, are there within the Corinthian church. So how does Paul react to those false accusations? Well, we don't know how he initially reacted when he and the team first heard, but we do have his considered response before us tonight. Paul knows with complete and utter confidence that the Corinthian church will support him in prayer, lifting him to God. He's confident that they will lift him in prayer to the God that they serve together. Regardless of the character assassination his detractors are trying to perpetuate and emptily boast about, Paul boasts with a rich, full and true glorification of God. How often do we boast like that? And throughout this letter, Paul often uses derivations of those words, glory and boast. Paul and his team have always conducted themselves in a way which sees God honoured and glorified, both when with the Corinthians and when away from them in other parts of the world. This conduct and conscience will put to bed all the lies and our mistruths of those who want to assassinate Paul's character and integrity. This godly sincerity and integrity is of the finest purity. This is a purity which can endure the test of being held up to the sun and having the sun shine through it. In other words, Paul's actions and integrity are so clear and pure that no hidden actions or hidden motives are there in his life to be seen, unlike the hidden actions and motives of his accusers. And Paul is being accused on several different counts. Some are unjustly accusing him of not being a real apostle of Jesus Christ, but merely a self-proclaimed false apostle it was only in it for the money that he could earn. That's patent nonsense. For example, we know that Paul worked with his own hands when he was with Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. Some are accusing Paul of writing in a way that Corinthian Christians couldn't possibly comprehend. Again, nonsense. Paul claims there is nothing in his writings that the Corinthians would not be able to read or comprehend. Why? Because it was written in Paul's usual, direct, sincere and straightforward manner. 
Paul could almost be Australian. He had spent time with them and they knew the way in which he thought and taught. There was nothing between the lines, no secret messages, no double meanings, despite what the accusers say and infer. It was all out in the open for all to see. Paul's conscience and those of his team is clear, as they have always dealt with the Corinthians with directness, clarity, honesty, integrity, and a pure heart without guile, fraud, or deceit. Therefore, because their consciences are clear, Paul and his team have that quiet, inner joy and peace. And this was all done through God's grace, poured upon them, rather than the wisdom which comes from the world. Another accusation being thrown at Paul was that he was all in it for his own glory. Again, patently false. So whose glory was it for? God alone. If it was for Paul's glory, then he would have said they relied on worldly wisdom and cleverness of worlds and cunning instead of relying upon God's grace alone. A ministry relying on God's, or church relying on God's grace, relies on God's power for its effectiveness. Could that be said of each of us here tonight? The Corinthians knew the truth of what Paul is saying, not just from hearsay, from malingering gossips, but from actual experience of Paul. He had lived among them, was known by them, just as he knew them. What's more, Paul's message was unchanged from the time he first met the Corinthian church in Acts chapter 18. The Corinthian church now know in part regarding Paul, but one day, one day, they will come to understand fully and they will be able to boast about Paul's ministry among them and to them. Oh, what a day! This is a boast not born from arrogance, but a boast which is born from confidently glorifying God alone. When on that final day, that great and glorious day, when all stand before God in, in the great day of the Lord Jesus, all will be revealed. Not just the actions, but also all the motivations, attitudes and intentions behind the actions. Paul, in no small way, will then boast of the Corinthians to the glory of God. What is more, the Corinthians will do similar regarding Paul. What a day that will be! You should be smiling! Or are you English? I know what the African churches would be doing. And because of this, Paul was confident in the Corinthian church. Yes, Paul had originally wanted to visit Corinth on his way to Macedonia and then on his way back as he passed through on his way to Judea. Why? Also they could benefit from his visit. Now, in not visiting, is this fickleness, indecisiveness, or a wobble in Paul's faith in God and thereby showing his unreliability, as suggested by his accusers and his mockers? Of course not. As for his actual reason for not visiting, well, you'll have to wait until next week with Anne. What about this yes, yes and no, no business? 
I think the New Living Translation in green is better here for clarity. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't be wobbly and wishy-washy. Be truthful, straightforward, upright, forthright and direct, doing what you say you will do. No loopholes, no twisted words, no hidden agenda, no deceit, no lies, no half-truths. Be careful that when you say you will do something, put it under the will of God. This is nothing new. This is expressed in the Ten Commandments. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. In other words, don't say something false. God is truth, and circumventing truth is essentially going against God. And here, Paul is repeating the words of both Jesus and James. James, another one who could be Australian. Except his book is a book of love. Or perhaps again, that's just me. Additionally, these accusers are also saying that Paul is completely unreliable and is therefore untrustworthy. They're insinuating that Paul doesn't know whether he's coming, he's going, or what he's doing. Paul's being accused of being wobblier than a, than a mound of jelly on the table. Paul's accusers say, Paul says he's coming and then he doesn't. His actions are wibbly-wobbly, all up and down and all around about and all around and around, and so thought, therefore there, so are his words. He can't be trusted. He isn't wanting to visit you, Church of Corinthian. Get over it. That's what his false accusers were saying. Whereas when we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 in the previous letter from a year ago, Paul adds the proviso. He says, I want to come and stay a while if the Lord will let me. So obviously, it was the Lord that didn't allow Paul to visit. Nothing to do with the wobbly fickleness of Paul. Paul makes it clear where he stands, as he always does. Just as Jesus Christ is the yes of all God's promises, he's also been the yes to the changes in Paul's travel arrangements. Those accusations of lies, gossip and rumour-mongering full of misinformation and disinformation. That's all the accusations are. We're in a spiritual battle, as I'm sure you know. I've been acutely aware of it in the last four weeks or so, as some trusted folks here know, because I reached out to them. I've been writing a book on spiritual warfare. We know that faith and a clear conscience are essential for victory in this uh, spiritual battle. Satan is the father of lies, just as he is the father of all gossip, rumour-mongering, misinformation and disinformation. The devil is the father of confusion, and that's what he's doing here, stirring up trouble here in the church of Corinth, using these accusers. He's the great accuser. It's he who doesn't want the church in Corinth to learn and flourish for Christ. We see it quite plainly before us. Accusers stirring up strife and confusion. Therefore, Paul implies that he can be trusted to say 
not say one thing about his travel plans and then go and do another without real cause. Those who say in the same breath, yes, yes and no, no, are doing what is expected by some, expected by those who can't comprehend the world outside of what they see with their eyes. However, for the Christian, there is a hope in Christ as God is not like man and God keeps all his promises. Paul here is claiming that there is no capricious or random breaking of promises as far as God is concerned. God has said it, so he will fulfil his promises. Paul writes that the Corinthians should realise that to unjustly call into question the integrity and trustworthiness of a true apostle is to call into question the very faithfulness of God himself who had called Paul to spread the gospel and entrusted him to with it. Had, God saved, not, had not God saved them through the words of Paul, a faithful servant? Or were they accusing God of saving them through a faithful servant? Paul, of strict training, remember, whose yes meant yes and whose no meant no. Paul, a faithful servant whose preaching had no double meaning, is straightforward and is no mere performance. Paul reminds these Corinthians that they themselves had not only trusted him, but had also trusted, entrusted Silas and Timothy in both message and character. The Corinthians, as Paul had done, had experienced the very yes and amen of God. That is God's saving purposes through Jesus Christ. Their proclamation of that yes, the gospel, was theirs. Therefore, they should not doubt the fidelity of Paul and his team. Have you experienced this yes and amen of God? Verse 20. In and through his son, Jesus Christ, God has said yes. This yes is not a mere nod of the head. This yes is an avowed affirmation of commitment. It's an assertion and confirmation of assent. The Corinthian church had experienced the yes of Jesus, which is not temporary, but a permanent and continual uh, uh, reality. It's to God's glory alone. Jesus Christ is now their identity, and their identity is now hidden with Christ and in Christ. Why? Because they, like all Christians, have union with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the starting point. All covenants and promises of God are found and fulfilled in and through Jesus Christ and him alone. All of them with a yes and an amen to the promises of God. There are none missing from Genesis to Malachi. All are fulfilled comprehensively by Jesus Christ and him alone. From that first promise of a rescuer, a redeemer in Genesis, through to the promise of his coming. Jesus fulfills all the covenants of the Old Testament. Eden, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, and this new covenant. So who is this Jesus? He is God the Son who is man. He is God incarnate or God becoming man. Why would God the Son become a man? By becoming man, he humbled himself to reveal the Father, 
to become our high priest before God, to become our advocate before God, to destroy all the works of the evil one, to give an example of how to live life and life to the full, and to prepare for the redemption of all creation when one day creation is redeemed. And if it were not for Jesus, then we could doubt every single one of God's promises. But a God who loves us so much that he gives us his own son, Jesus Christ, can be assured to keep every promise that he has made. God is the ultimate promise keeper. Jesus is the personal guarantee from God that his word, his promises and his covenants are true and that God always keeps his word. What a saviour Jesus Christ is. Jesus is yes and amen to the promises and covenants of God, which are seized by the amen of faith. What is more, while Jesus Christ, Christ is the great rouser of faith, his appeal stretches out across the world, around the world, and also through time. And how? Through those who represent him, the church. We Christians spread the yes of God, the amen of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ in all manner of ways so that others may join us in this great amen, the yes of God. One day, we who are Christians will see God face to face. He will take our face in, our hand, in his hands and he will wipe away the tears of joy as he embraces us. What a day! So when was the last time that you told somebody else of this good news about Jesus Christ? Part of all this is Jesus fulfilling what we call the new covenant. We will look at that later in this letter with Ian on the 5th of June. So I promise not to go too far now. Although you can always have my notes, Ian. You may even disagree with them. This new covenant is the seventh covenant between God and humanity and is sealed only through the blood of Jesus on the cross. It's his blood which ensures the truth and reality of this new covenant. His death pays the penalty for the sins of all people. But it's our responsibility to say yes to God and his new covenant. Is that not amazing news? In fact, good news to be shared. It's no wonder that one ancient translation of verse 20 ends, therefore by him we give amen to the glory of God. Amen, amen, amen. The glory of God being the heavy weightiness of God's very reality, for that's what glory means. I've said a hearty yes and amen to Jesus almost 40 years ago now. Jesus is altogether lovely and lovely altogether. Jesus is beyond compare for the things he has done, is doing and will do. Do for me, do for you, do for all those who are following him. Jesus Christ is altogether lovely in regard to his personhood, his humanity, his birth, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his exaltation, glorification, grace, protection, tenderness, power, wisdom, vengeance, uh, judgment, majesty, redemption and pardon. And you thought I can't talk quickly. 
My Jesus, unique, majestic, tender, wise, strong and lovely. That's my Jesus whom I seek to serve and obey in every facet of life, every second of every day. I rarely achieve it, but I know that when I fail, I can go to him in penitence and faith and ask for forgiveness and he will grant it from his twin wellsprings of grace and mercy. It's this Jesus whom I depend upon and personally know to be totally reliable in every way. When people let me down, turn away from me, discourage me, think wrongly of me, incorrectly assume my motives, or falsely accuse me, this Jesus always picks me up, never turns me away, and he always encourages and embraces me. The yes of God, the amen of God, which is Jesus. And all through each day, I know with complete surety that Jesus has been dependable going ahead of me. Amazing. Oh, how Jesus loves you and I. Jesus, do you know him? Do you love him? Have you said yes and amen to him? And in this new covenant, there are four main features. Are we up there behind us? Yes. Firstly, Christians will have justification before God where their sins will be forgiven, removed and remembered no more. Secondly, there will be a regenerated people as God will write his law on their hearts. And thirdly, Christians will be restored into relationship with God for God will be their God and they will be God's people. There we are. The Christian justified, regenerated, and restored by God, for God, with God. So now to our fourth aspect of this new covenant. Signed, sealed and guaranteed. The Corinthian church were firmly in the grip of God. How do we know that? Because God had established them based on the preaching of Paul established by the amen of faith and they are rooted deeply in him. Not just the Corinthian church, but Paul also. A shared experience which is sincere and consistent with their shared lives together. This amen and yes with God is not just a once in a lifetime bargain, but it's been daily affirmed within our lives. Each morning starts a new day to serve God in all manner of ways. The first words I utter as I wake up is, Good morning, Dad, what are we doing today? God has worked in these Corinthians for their conversion, but he's also helped them to stand firm and solid. How does God do this? Verse 22. God comes to indwell and live within his people and they will be led by him. And the idea of deposit here speaks from everyday Greek legal documentation. The seal on a document was the guarantee to show and verify that all had been authenticated and approved. It was the first installment and a guarantee that the full price would be paid. The Holy Spirit, therefore, 
is a deposit. He is God's guaranteed vow of much greater things to come. Again, can you wait? Can you believe it? And through the Holy Spirit, God has anointed and consecrated, consecrated people who have said yes and amen to him. He consecrates them. For what purpose? For service to God and for God. And all because of and through Jesus Christ and him alone. As Christians, we've been anointed with the oil of gladness. I can tell by your faces. This is in evidence because God has set his seal of ownership upon us. God can say, that person's mine and that person's mine and that person's mine and that person's mine and even that person. Wow! That person as well! Amazing! The Holy Spirit has sealed us as God's children, marked and secure. The Holy Spirit is a deposit of what is to come. He's a foretaste and a complete guarantee of God's investment in us and for us. Amazing, isn't it? Or is that just me? Because I forget things very easily, as you know. So who is this Holy Spirit? Very quickly. God the Holy Spirit was promised not only in the Old Testament, but also by Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. The Holy Spirit is life and truth and love. It was the Holy Spirit who spoke through the Old Testament prophets and induced godliness and equipped God's leaders for service. The Holy Spirit relates to each of us as a person for he's also the comforter, the guide, the counsellor and the teacher. Do you sometimes struggle to pray? Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit helps and intercedes for us on such occasions. Again, wow! The work of the Holy Spirit can be seen in various ways and I'll just take through a quick look at just some of them now. He glorifies Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit glorifies God the Father and God the Son. He testifies for Jesus and witnesses for Jesus and brings power for those who us who are Christian. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete. That is, he is the holy comforter and counsellor. He is the one who is called to stand alongside and within Christian believers. This is where the Holy Spirit ministers to us as if Jesus himself was with us physically beside us. And because the Holy Spirit lives within us, he uh, is transforming us into the very likeness of Jesus, is he not? And this Holy Spirit equips Christians for service. God is working in you to will and to act according to his purpose and for us to be his witnesses. And then he declares God's word. The Holy Spirit is a prime role in God's word's revelation. It was he who spoke through the prophets and it was he who inspired the Bible. And more than that, this Holy Spirit interprets and illuminates God's word to us as we read it with open minds. And without the Holy Spirit, the Bible would simply be just another book. 
and he fills us. This speaks of the Holy Spirit's control or domination of our lives. Christians, we have to be com- continually filled with the Spirit. And this is meant to be our normal state. He empowers us and enables us to witness and evangelize those words again. And lastly for tonight, we are born of the Holy Spirit and we are known as regenerated. That means born again and born from above. And with all that said, what do you think is the best evidence for the work of this Holy Spirit? Miracle and healings are not the prima facie or fundamental evidence for the work of the Holy Spirit. Satan can counterfeit those things. That's not to say that miracles and healings of and by God don't occur. And I know that they do, as I've experienced one or two of them. Indeed, it could be said that without a miracle back in 2007, I wouldn't be here. That was when God told me, no, get up, when I wanted to go home. Thank you. But that also is not where he is mostly seen or in evidence. The best and most assured signs of the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of any Christian is when Jesus is glorified, acknowledged, trusted and served. The Spirit's work is in greatest evidence where people's lives are being transformed, becoming more holy and more like Jesus Christ. It was this transformation of my life by him, which was seen by my parents, that convinced them of the reality of God as they saw his work upon me. They no longer thought that Christians were hypocrites and that churches were dangerous. As Christians, we're to be controlled by the Spirit, Another way of saying this is by submitting ourselves to the Spirit's leading. We resubmit ourselves to him daily, devoting ourselves sacrificially to using his power in order to serve Jesus. We're to yield to the Holy Spirit, and in yielding to him our bodies and our minds, they are given to him for the glory of Jesus. Both the body and the mind, what's left of it, are yielded because the body activates what is conceived in the mind. Adam mentioned something along like those lines this morning, didn't he? We're called to a total dedication of all our thoughts, our plans, our actions, our motivations, and putting them into God's hands and the seeking of his wisdom. Can you imagine what our towns and our nation and the world would be like if all the self-proclaimed Christians acted like that? Perhaps I've got a vivid imagination. And so what can we say as we conclude? Let's go from here and put all our words and thoughts under submission to this spirit. As Christians, we have said yes and amen to God. Imagine if each person who said they were a Christian explained the gospel to just one person per one week and the impact that that would have for the kingdom of God and upon the church, locally, nationally and globally. Perhaps I do have a vivid imagination. 
God is completely faithful and he has fulfilled all his promises to us and has come to live within us through the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the advocate, the counsellor and the holy comforter. I know from experience when people have made false accusations against me that the Spirit has always embraced me and told me that he loves me. What would be a good reaction to those who accuse us falsely? One reaction is to just simply ignore them and get on with proclaiming the gospel and carrying out the work that God has had us do. Another reaction, depending on circumstances, could be taken from these words of Paul. Again I say, don't get involved in foolish and ignorant arguments that only start fights. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone. Be able to teach and be patient with difficult people. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. Wise words, aren't they? Did you notice the evil one's role? As we conclude, let's ask ourselves these questions and see how we respond. It may just be that we need to ask God for forgiveness or for strength. Question 1. Have I been falsely accused, gossiped and rumour-mongered about? And if I have, how did I respond or react? Question 2. When was the last time I told somebody else the good news concerning Jesus Christ? Question 3. Will there be somebody in heaven that I can boast and glorify God about? Question 4. Will there be somebody in heaven who will boast and glorify God about the work that I have done with them? Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are here. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are here. Thank you, Father, that you are here. May the words that have been spoken and received, may they, each of them, have been glorifying to you, and may we go from here, knowing not only that we have met with each other, but that we have met with you, the living God. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thanks for joining us today at Partakers Podcast. Come back every day to www.partakers.co.uk where there is something uploaded to help you as a Christian disciple, wherever you are in this world, to live for Jesus Christ alone. Our books are available on Amazon at www.pulptheology.com. See you tomorrow.